0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. My guest is uh, Aaron Johnson. He's an assistant professor of mechanical engineering at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. We've been talking about uh, robots, getting them out of the lab and having them do real world stuff like navigating rocky hills and cluttered houses and things like that. So Aaron, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, you know, it sounds simple, but uh, how difficult is it just on its face uh, to get robots to work in, uh, complex complex environments like people's homes or you know restaurants or you know outside various terrain.
1: Yeah, it's it's very challenging because uh, the where robots have been very successful is in factories and warehouses where we typically engineer the environment to suit the needs of the robot. So we know that the conveyor belt is perfectly flat and where it is with good lighting. Um, and once we get out into either natural terrain or or human environments. There's clutter, we lay, leave things on the floor, things are moving around, and, uh, and the robot may not be able to see everything that it needs to see and may not know exactly how it's interacting with that environment. And so the, the uncertainty that comes from, from these sorts of unstructured environments makes it much more difficult. Uh, if, if we knew exactly how heavy the box was and exactly where it is for a warehouse sort of packing operation, then, then the robots are, are doing quite well. But the the moving over broken terrain, uneven terrain, uh, cluttered environments where we, we can't um, can't see what we're stepping on, um, that's where robot where robots have a lot more trouble.
0: So how much do you have to borrow from the uh, driverless car industry? So I think they're focused big time on you know driverless cars, and a lot of the same principles that apply to robots out in the real world.
1: Absolutely, and I think some, one of the things you see with the driverless cars is the initial sort of excitement with Driverless cars was that it was a more structured problem. We have roads; they're relatively flat, and we can have a map ahead of time, and there's traffic signals. And so the sort of initial progress was quite rapid on on those problems because uh, because we could we could sort of make some assumptions. And as all of these different companies are trying to get their uh, driverless cars to be reliable, they're discovering well. Pedestrians don't always cross at the crosswalk, and, and the flat asphalt may not be as flat as we think, and the painted lines are sometimes hard to see, depending on the lighting condition. Um, and so they're discovering that you know, even though that is an engineered environment, they're driving on, on paved roads with, with controlled uh, traffic, um, there's still a lot of uncertainty that comes in, and, and that sort of that last little bit to get over that uncertainty is the, is the challenge. And certainly all the excitement with with multiple companies uh, pursuing this is really helping to push forward a lot of the same sensing technology, uh, autonomy, algorithms that we would use on on a mobile robot that's uh, either um, walking around or or on wheels in in smaller spaces.
0: Um, When you learn how to modify an environment to make it easier for machine vision to work and a robot to work... um, is there a way to take those learnings and apply it to people? You know, let's say like uh, you know, a robot has a hard time distinguishing uh, something on the road because of the poor lighting. So maybe that leads you to reformulate the striped material on the road, the incandescence of it or the color of it, so that it's easier for people to see in bad lighting conditions. Is there any learnings back and forth by doing what you do?
1: I, I think there certainly could be. I don't know of any, any of the examples so far where, where it's gone in that direction. I can say, in my experience, thinking robots outside, the places where they fail are often places where you could imagine a human having trouble as well. Uh, So, for instance, we had a legged robot that was working, we were working on stair climbing. And so we went around to find every different type of staircase we could find in the area. And where it struggled were ones where there were clear glass panels, where the sort of visual ambiguity. Um, as well as sort of open riser and and more industrial staircases that that are actually harder for humans, especially if if it was low light, you might, um, you know, also have issues in those same areas.
0: Yeah. So what what did you, well, again, so in that exact example, you tried a whole bunch of staircases, you found out which ones would be hard for a robot, but I don't know, would it be even useful or is it just kind of ancillary to what you're doing? It doesn't matter that you can inform places that are putting in stairs for instance, Hey, best practices is you don't use this kind of thing, not only because in the future we want robots to be able to navigate your space, but because for people as well, it causes them issues, you know, going up and down space. So maybe this this uh, looking ahead, uh, preparing businesses and environments to be more robot-ready, more robot-friendly, maybe there's an angle there too.
1: Yeah, I think definitely the, the challenge is that the, in general humans are, are so much more capable um, on the perception and autonomy and, and presence that they have um, that we're sort of not quite at a level where we're sort of pushing the same same boundaries always. But I'll give you another example on, on stair climbing specifically. Um, there's, a, there's some great YouTube videos from a particular subway staircase in New York City that over time has settled so that a single step is, is about, uh, you know, half an inch or a quarter inch taller than the other steps. And, and someone set up a video camera, and you can see almost every human going up the stairs, these stairs trip on that same step mm-hmm. because they think they're all going to be the same height, and they, you know, they're just walking along. They're not looking as carefully at that stair, uh, and, um, and and all sort of stumble on that on that same step. Um, and so certainly, a, as we start to get robots that are more capable of, of climbing stairs in general and are doing it more often, we might be able to detect some of these uh, these issues. Um, you know, that, that do affect humans as well. And the other thing I'll say so in, in terms of in in terms of sort of improving spaces for robots, this is something where things like the ADA, Americans with Disability Act, um is is really uh pushing, you know, buildings and and, and other human environments to be more accessible to to different sorts of, of mobility. Um and that's definitely um helped on the robotics side. A lot of robotics research for human environments will assume ADA-compliant uh, buildings, which, of course, most of our houses are not and, and lots of those buildings are not. Um, but it gives us sort of a good standard with which we can we can compare
0: to. So what, what are, you know, pun intended, but what are the stumbling blocks to robots being able to operate in complex environments? Is it processing speed? You know, can the robot not react to... The environment fast enough or is it just a lack of enough data for the robots to figure stuff out?
1: I really think that the, the biggest stumbling block is the challenge that comes from the physical contact with the world. So for, for legged robots but also wheeled robots and manipulation systems um, that are going out and, and physically touching the world, they're walking on rough terrain, they're picking up objects in clutter where they may bump into other objects and the dynamics of contact are very discontinuous, meaning if I have my hand just above the table, I have zero contact force, and as soon as I, I touch down on the table, I can have large contact forces. And this means that any amount of uncertainty that we have in the system can cause uh, large disturbances. So if I think I'm going to be just above the table, but I actually bump into it, uh, I can I can very quickly you know, lose track of, of where I'm going. And as we sort of no longer are engineering the environment and don't know exactly how flat it is or, or the... Uh, or the location of objects, Um, the fact that this physical contact is inherently discontinuous in nature uh, is is what makes it so challenging. And so we can be relatively good at at perception and and understanding the scene, but if we're off by – we can be off by relatively small amounts and still uh, have trouble.
0: Well, so is there – are there stages where there's, like, sensing – Uh, initial contact and then a feedback loop, you know, was the contact successful and in the way that, you know, does it correlate with the sensing? Like uh, I'm going to put my foot down on something. Uh, My sensors tell me that it's hard, but when I put my foot on it, I slip or I, you know, uh, it's a crumbly surface. Does that loop happen with robot uh, vision and and sensing?
1: Absolutely. And, and, and that's the, the, the way that we, we try and tackle this is trying to, um, you know, sense the environment as well as we can, but then if we're, if we're not certain if we're touching something, then we have to to sort of slow down uh, and and really try and feel the world. Uh, I would call this sort of proprioception, so some of your internal senses of force and position to see if, if you're really contacting the world the way you, you think you are. Um, but we also need to, um, in terms of what, what the limitations of current robots are, we need to have better um, control algorithms that, are, that aren't that are trying to perfectly map out the entire world and exactly when you're touching each part. Um, we need to be designing robots that are capable of succeeding, even if they do bump into uh, the chair as it's walking around. Or when you go to pick up your coffee mug, your hand brushes along the table. That's okay for a human arm. We kind of bump into things all the time. Um, and our control systems are just robust enough to this contact that it's not a problem. If we come coming from a direction of assuming we know exactly where all the objects are and all the forces uh, that we'll experience uh, leads to this sort of uh, brittle behaviors that um, that limit, limit their capability.
0: So, you know, what do you do? What, what makes the behavior brittle? How can you make it more robust like a person?
1: So in my lab, we study the properties of the dynamics uh, in and around Contact events and thinking about uncertainty, uh, in, in order to design controllers that are uh, inherently robust, uh, that, that can uh, work kind of no matter when you touch down or no matter what contacts you're making, um, and and this sort of by analyzing the the structure of these dynamics, uh, we can start to to overcome those. Um, I think the other uh, important thing to look at is 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 just trying to sort of push the boundary of what the robot can do. And maybe a lot of the stuff we do in the line, maybe the robot can't do it uh, reliably enough to be deployed yet, but in a sort of research setting, looking at what types of terrain could we get over uh, with different morphologies, different control strategies, um, and that's what's sort of exposing these limitations on around contact and uncertainty that that drives our our research.
0: Well, what are are some of the specific things that robots are worst at? What are they... And bungle completely, and what are they good at?
1: Yeah, I think the I would say the, the when when you watch these great compilation videos of, of robots falling over and and uh, and failing in different fun way fun ways online, and the common theme that I see when I look at that is that uh, either the the robot tried to grab onto something and didn't, uh, meaning that they missed the contact that they thought they would have. Uh, or their elbow knocked something over or they, they they made some other they bumped into the environment somewhere else and ended up pushing against a wall that they didn't know about um and and that, that led to the failure sort of down the line um and, but it all sort of started with um the robot's assumption about its contact conditions was different than uh than what was actually happening
0: well is there a trade-off between the robot seeing in complete 360 360- both vertically and horizontally, and and too much information coming into its processing system. Like you know, I, I'm picturing robots right now, and we want to anthropomorphize them. You know, like we look ahead and a little bit to you know like a 45 degree field of vision. But a robot, I would think, to be effective needs to be aware of all its surroundings at all times. So why would it bump into stuff? How come it's not seeing everything always?
1: Yeah, so I think there's really two questions in that. Sort of on the on the first one, in terms of should we just put more sensors on, and is there any sort of limit to how much information we can collect? And certainly, we do run into computational limits. Um, we, you know, we're trying to use as much sensor data as we can, as fast as we can process them. Um, computational limits are, in some ways, easier to, to uh, overcome to a certain extent um, as computers get faster and parallel architectures, um, you know, allow us to to process multiple sensor streams at once uh, and build up a sort of more complete picture. One of the challenges, even if we could look out in all directions, if we're walking up uh, a rocky uh, terrain, we, we can't see on the far side of that rock. Uh, or if we're picking up an object on a table, we can't see behind the coffee mug to, to see if there's another object that we would bump. And so there's some limitations to that just come from visual occlusions. Um, to, to how much you can see once you're in these more cluttered environments. Uh, the second part of your question, I think, was asking more about, um, you know, as humans, we have uh, only two eyes, and, and they're in our head, and they're only looking sort of in one direction at a time. And so we know that that it should be possible to um, to to work relatively reliably with much less sensing than a lot of robots have right now. A lot of robots have 360-degree, uh, not just um, color information, but also depth. So they're getting a, a real 3D map in all directions at all times. Um, and many many robots have multiple of these kinds of sensors, um, which is much more than, than humans or other animals are using. Um, and to some extent, I think that's a good indication that maybe we don't need as much uh, perception as we have But it's important to remember that we're working with different types of sensors, different, you know, our our sensors are good at at seeing different types of things. Um, And we're also working with different types of actuators, different types of materials. And so we can sort of draw some inspiration from biology, but we don't want to be constrained to say, well, you know, the humans only have two eyes, let's only put two cameras on the robot, and they have to point forward. Um, And we don't want to be sort of constrained by that.
0: Well, people have to have a, uh, a reticular activating system just with their two eyes because they've taken so much information, and a lot of it needs to get discarded in order to operate efficiently. So I, I, I sense that there's this huge trade-off there. Maybe uh, having 360 perception and you know seeing things in infrared and visual and you know etc. and seeing depth and all that maybe uh, we'll run into a wall of processing speed. And that we're going to have to give up those things, and maybe that's why nature has done it with every creature instead of creatures that can see everything in 360. You know?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that computers are really good at is moving lots of data around and and processing large matrices very quickly. Um, and so I think that's something that um, that on the engineering side we're much better at. Uh, what we're much worse at is things like intuition and a lot of the Low-level um, um, uh, sort of motor learning skills that um, um, sort of hand-eye coordination type type skills that um, that don't take a lot of processing in uh, in animals and humans, um, but that are very hard for for robots to achieve. Um, and so I think on the on the on using sort of camera and other extraceptive visual perception. Um, that's actually something that we're we're getting very good at uh, in terms of the computational architecture and algorithms that we have available for that, and in some ways it can be you know better than than visual uh, acuity, and uh, that it can be 360 all of the time. Um, but it, just because you know again th- because of the differences in uh, what biological systems are good at versus engineered systems, um, we shouldn't sort of throw away what, we're, what we are doing well at uh, on the engineering side.
0: So if you would, if you would imagine, um, you know, I was thinking like in the movie Terminator and how in the movie, I'm, I don't know if it happened, but, you know, people would sneak up on a robot and club it in the head, you know, but with what we're talking about, that could never happen because the robot sees in 360 all the time. So like, what would you imagine a realistic, futuristic, amazingly effective super robot to be like? Like, can you paint a picture of what that would look like? Look like and how would it sense and how would it move and you know if you could have all your ideals right now what would that be? Um,
1: I mean I think it, it depends on sort of what the what the task is and one of the the jokes that people say in robotics is once a system actually works we don't call it a robot anymore so for instance uh, you know for if you wanted to have a robot that washes your your dishes well we actually have a dishwashing robot in, you know in your house right now. And so I think, I think it's hard to sort of answer the question in, in general because it's very sort of task dependent. I will say if, if you look at the movies, things like Terminator and, and, or iRobot or any of these, um, they're actually all, all of these robots are shown as being very, in some ways, graceful. You know, they're walking over whatever environment. They're not bumping into things. And, and these are the things that are, are much, more, much harder for uh, robots to do right now. In contrast, we're actually better than than maybe what some of these, um, you know, science fiction imagination of, of robotics is in that we can have much more sensor data and we can uh, do sort of numerical processing very quickly. Um, so, for instance, if you imagined a robot to do, um, you know, let's say a, a demanding human job, like a, let's say an accountant or something, then the the accounting part, the the thinking part of our jobs is very is much easier for the uh, engineered systems to do. But the getting out of bed and putting clothes on and and, and handling um, different materials and uh, and working in cluttered environments, we're, no, we're we're much farther away from having robots that, that can do that part of things.
0: Okay, so what's what's the goal for your lab in the next you for know, your research in the next three to five years? What do you hope to accomplish specifically? So
1: our long term goal is to build robots that can go anywhere in the world to work on uh, rocky hilly terrain as well as as cluttered human environments um, and in the next few years, we're really focused on um, on designing controllers that are robust to the uncertainty that comes from uh, from very rough uh, terrain uh, so mostly thinking about um, outdoor terrain and and building robots that can get over the kinds of rocks and underbrush and, and other obstacles that, that come along with that. Um, and so we're trying to, um, to build these robots for, for several applications, and one of the that I'm most excited about in the next two to three years is, is environmental monitoring. So sending robots out into remote locations to collect samples to look for either contaminants or to monitor changes in the environment. Um, and, and just sort of go out and collect information in locations. It's very hard for us to collect um, collect sensor information right now.
0: Okay, uh, just because of the harshness in the environment that it would kill people or disable them. Is that why?
1: Uh, no, just that it, it's very slow and and tedious to to sort of go out into a desert far away from from other infrastructure. And um, right now, if we want to collect data there, you know, we send someone and we can we can generally um, actually get there, but it's very slow and expensive. Uh, and if we can build robots that can get over these kinds of challenging environments, we can be much more efficient in terms of um, processing the sensor data on board and, and deciding where to collect information in the future. But we can also just collect much more information um, because we can build, have multiple robots go out and, and, and continually collect data um and so we think this we're working to to use these robots to try and find contaminants that are, have entered the environment as well as look at at longer term changes uh like desertification or, or or climate change
0: so is there a specific robot that you're you're working on a specific application robot or you is it more broad what you're doing
1: we have a lot of robots I- in my lab um in sort of different projects are are working on different systems. Uh, most of the robots in my lab are legged robots. Um, and again, this is some of the bioinspiration coming in. Um, lots of animals have legs. They seem to be pretty useful at getting over this kind of rough terrain. Um, but we also have some, some wheeled robots that have uh, complicated uh, suspension systems that, that make them pretty good at getting over this kind of rough terrain as well. Um, and one of the, the longer-term research questions in my lab is, trying to understand when do you need legs uh, versus using wheels to get over different types of environments.
0: Anything you've learned about robots and motion and sensing that just really, I don't know, is just very surprising to you or very strange to you or things that really pique your curiosity?
1: I think the what always surprises me is anytime we're working with biologists or looking at at sort of animal examples, just how far behind engineering is from, from biology where any you know the little mice that are running around in your backyard are are you know jumping over obstacles or squeezing through um, a tunnel or or under a, a root and um, and just and just moving around at a level that's that's well beyond what we can do now um, and so we've been we've been working for the last few years on tails as one example and looking at, at how cheetahs use their tails or how lizards use their tails. And they're doing all of these different behaviors with them. It's all very fluid and natural. They didn't spend hours designing this trajectory to exactly achieve this one behavior. They just run out and, and, and jump over that obstacle and keep going. Um, and, um, yeah, and so anytime we, we look at these kinds of examples and then we go back to our, our robots that still trip and, and slide around and, and move relatively slowly, um, that's what I think is always the, the most surprising.
0: Okay. And then, what do you think is going to be possible for the industry in the near term, maybe three to five years, and then, you know, longer term, 10, 20 years?
1: I think the the near term, we're really seeing a lot of progress in what we might call somewhat structured environments, And so there's lots of, obviously, self-driving cars, but also um, sidewalk delivery robots, and and warehouse robots that are now starting to work around humans and in in in, in areas where where um where objects might be moving around more than than they had before. And uh, sort of the long term trend is sort of how structured does the environment have to be? I mean the the robots that are that are welding your car frame together. Are, are in a box where, you know, the human stays outside the box, the robot stays inside the box, and they're just totally separated. Um, and now we're starting to see this transition into robots being uh, near, closer to humans in, in less structured environments. Um, and I think that trend will just sort of continue, uh, you know, over, over the next few decades.
0: What about, uh, one, one quick thought, um, what about a distributed system? So if a robot's going to do a task, why does it have to be one robot? You know, for us as a human, we're one, one person, so we have everything on board, all our processing, all our faculties, all our you know, hands, arms, digestion. But for a robot, why couldn't you have, instead of just a single object, you know, it has a component that flies, that communicates the, the body that walks, and then there's another component that does the sensing and that communicates to the rest of the robot. So you don't have just have one thing. You have multiple small little robots that act in concert, but they're all really for the same task. So like a distributed system.
1: Absolutely. The the trade off here is how much redundancy you have to have. So now each separate robot needs to have its own mobility system, its own communication system, its own energy storage. So you have some redundancy that, that you have to pay. Um, but at the same but on the flip side you can now have specialization. Um, and um, and I think I, especially thinking about Networked systems of, of multiple robots, um, there's no reason that, that they all have to, to work entirely on their own and independently. Um, and, and in my lab, we do a lot of analysis on sort of scaling questions. Would you rather have one big robot or many small robots? And different physical properties scale in different ways. Um, and so the classic example is the ant that can pick up, you know, three or four times its own body weight because of the way um, the strength of materials and, and forces scale at, to, to smaller scales. So we have some smaller robots in our lab that individually can't lift as much as the big robot, but there may be uh, one quarter or uh, an eighth of the weight with, uh, of the bigger robot, but they can actually lift more than half as much as, as the big robot. And so thinking about um, some tasks are better suited to relatively small robots with multiple systems, uh, while other tasks, you know, if you have one big heavy sensor, you, you wanna put that on, on one robot and rather than have four robots trying to carry it together. Um, and so we're definitely thinking about this trade off and in particular how the mechanics of of materials and forces at different scales plays into this question.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting how there's always trade offs, you know. It's never a straight shots and you gotta find this balance and nature seems to have you know, biology, like you said, has out engineered us big time and, they seem to have, you know, I guess by necessity, found this balance over billions of years. Well, very good. Any uh, final thoughts on um, the process of robotics? Or, uh, you know, if not, uh, what's what's a good way for people to get in touch and find out more?
1: Yeah. Um, so if, if people want to uh, get more information, they can go to my website, uh, which is robomechanics.net. Uh, and we've got lots of, of videos up uh, with these different robots. And looking at, um, we also have, have a link there to um, one of these the mini robots that I mentioned that, that we have as open source design. And so people can, can actually download and build one for about $200 to get a, a small legged uh, robot to to play around with if they want.
0: Oh, very cool. Okay. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for the info. It's uh, going to be interesting to see what uh, what comes in the next few years. Great. Thanks for having me.